Are you ready for some adventures in synthetic biology? This, uh, this, great, this image behind me is from a comic book that they, they developed, a working group at MIT University developed to popularize the notion of synthetic biology, to get teenagers interested in synthetic biology. And, and as it turns out, kids aren't waiting until college now to start to do experiments and start to do lab, start to do lab work in biology. They're actually doing it at home. They're doing it today in their houses, in their dens, in their closets even. And it's not just limited to kids, it's actually open to everybody. We've, we've reached this interesting phase now in society where we have citizen scientists. These are people who have access to labs and they're actually conducting science on their own. Uh, they're learning about it firsthand. They're conducting experiments. And, um, and with the field of synthetic biology, which we're going to get into in a great deal of detail in just a minute, you're going to learn some amazing stuff. This is absolutely at the forefront, the cutting edge of science right now. Uh, it's not your grandfather's genetic engineering in the sense of you know, taking two genes and splicing them together. This is a radically new notion. People are actually composing life. What they're doing is they're writing DNA, and they're writing it the same way that a, a software developer would write code for a computer. Except in this case, they're writing DNA that's then put into a living thing and can, and can replicate. And, and some of the breakthroughs are quite amazing. So there's already uh, a drug that's been introduced into the market through synthetic biology. And uh, it has the ability to reach up to a half a billion people who are, who are currently suffering from malaria. Uh, there are many other breakthroughs as well. We have bacteria that can eat up uh, toxic waste and algae that produce diesel fuel. Uh, some scientists are already speculating about the future, and, and some of the things they're talking about are incredible. Uh, some of them are Hollywood fantasies. There's a scientist who's speculating about bringing back extinct species, like the woolly mammoth or the Neanderthal. And so tonight, we'll get into some more of these fantasies and some of the reality of what's happening right now. Uh, what I want to do is introduce our first guest, who's a friend of mine. He's at the very forefront of both citizen science and synthetic biology. Please join me in welcoming Andrew Hassel. Andrew, come out on stage. Thank you. Great to see you. Hi, and welcome. Ooh, Thank you. Tricky chair there. So uh, welcome to Chicago, where it's freezing cold. Uh, it you just joined Autodesk, and I want to hear all about this. So tell me what your new title is. My title is Distinguished Research Scientist with the Bio Nano Programmable Matter Group at Autodesk. That's a mouthful. Yeah. It is. It's can, a conversation starter. Can you tell us what that means in plain English? Really, the short story is we're working now to, to envision what the software design tools might be like for really small and potentially living things. Yeah, Autodesk is a company that we tend to think of as, uh, as a company that's doing 3D technology for architects, uh, designers, and, um, and also 3D technology for like uh, computer graphics and, and, and special effects for movies. Exactly. So, so how is Autodesk getting into, into like designing microbes? Is that what you're doing? Well, really, you know, you, you, we make software design tools and software doesn't care about the scale of matter. Mm -hmm. it, it really, we need tools for being able to understand, visualize, simulate at really all scales, whether it's a building or whether it's a microbe. Okay, so in one respect, what you're doing is going to help the citizen science movement because you're building tools that are going to make it much easier for people to compose new life on a computer and visualize what that might be. Is that right? Yeah, it's all digital design these days. Wow, cool. Uh, I think you brought some pictures for us to share to talk about what's, what's coming next here. Why don't you do that? 
Yeah, happy to do Thanks. that. So really, you know, what I like to point out is I look at this as the new IT industry and really the first IT industry started with this device, like the first transistor. And this made, you know, computers accessible to certain groups of people, largely large organizations. The microchip revolutionized the economics of computing, though. This happened in the early 1970s, and of course, we know what happened after that. We started getting incredible new diversity and developers coming into the field, and really working out of garages sometime. And it became commoditized. Everyone could afford computing in just a few years. This was really big steps. So the, the analogy you're making is that this is basically, the stage we're at with synthetic biology is the same stage that we were with personal computers back in the late 70s. Absolutely. Where people were, you know, it was like homebrew computer club. People were building their own computers in their garages or their dens. Kind of like the labs that we were talking, I was talking about a minute ago. Exactly, except now we're working with a different type of computer, really bacteria. They're, they're like information processors that do chemicals, but they're different, you know, they're programmable, but the cool thing is they also make more of themselves. So they're like computers that can reproduce. This is pretty powerful. It's amazing. And if you look at a bacterial genome, it has about five megabits of information. Really, you know, a small photograph. But this is enough to program a living thing. And really, if you've got a software program, uh, you have to learn the basics. It's, you have to learn how to read it, you have to learn how to write it. Right. We've been sequencing with devices like this. This is a, a desktop, it's about the size of a laser printer, but it can do a whole human genome in reading it. We're starting to comprehend more and more of the basic tools of life, which is, this is a simulator for the first bacterial cell. It's actually so what's really going cool. on? What, what is this We're actually of? modeling all the chemical processes that happen in a single bacterium and, and understanding what's go going on below the hood. So this is a computer model of a cell? Computer model of a living cell. Wow, that's incredible. It's the first time we've ever done this. This was published by Stanford this last summer. And really what we're doing now is we're starting to learn how to write code. Thanks. You know, we started writing genetic code back in the 1970s using something called recombinant DNA technologies. It was cutting and splicing genetic code. And really, if you take a look at it, it's, you, you end up kind of writing a ransom note style. You can write anything, but it takes a long time to do. The shift with synthetic biology and what makes it so powerful is now we can actually use computer software. We don't need a lab anymore. We don't need these tools, which are really restrictive. We can start using laptops. So they virtualized the lab. Yes, essentially now we have word processors for DNA. And the cool thing is we have printers. Companies like DNA 2.0, and there's a bunch of other ones, will print out your DNA, kind of like a Kinko's used to, you know, print out color copies. So the analogy to the computers is actually total. It's really close. So the idea, you know, in the 80s when, when personal computers got good, we went from desktop, I guess, word composition to desktop publishing, and yeah. that was a big change in the print business. Now we're getting desktop biotech. And so it's push-button DNA, and this is... So you can compose DNA using a browser. You can compose DNA using a browser. You, you hit, hit a button hit print, and send it. They'll send it off to That's you. That's awesome. And this is opening up biotechnology to a whole new generation of people that, you know, are younger and know how to work with computers in the same way that, you know, 30 years ago, kids started playing with personal computers. And this is a big part of what you're doing. When I first met you, we were in Silicon Valley and you were telling me that you've been working with high school kids and even grade school kids to try to get them to 
to learn about synthetic biology, to maybe give them the confidence to play with it and experiment. Yeah, I want them to realize this is, this is uh, potentially going to be a field that they will work in for the rest of their life if they start getting interested. And in how's it. that going? I mean, the kids respond to this It's stuff? going really well. Um, really, some students naturally pick this up and they love working with it. And, and, so and they don't see a big barrier the way, I think when I was a kid, biology was for geeks. It was a challenge. You had to go, you know, had to wear a lab coat and you exactly. had to schedule time and there were beakers involved and so on. Yeah, it was more sciencey back then. Now it's more of an information science. That's cool. And then do they, do they use these things? Like when you work with kids, do they, do they use genome compiler to go like print out their, their, their organism or their, their DNA that they develop? They certainly use these types of software tools and these, and these DNA printers routinely now. That's kind of cool. Yeah, it's really sharp. Take us a little bit into the future. So tell us what's coming next then with this. Well, really what's been happening is, is we're starting to move into modularizing this type of genetic code, making it easier to assemble and to put together faster and cheaper. It's kind of like Lego bricks. You can, it's really extensible. And the groups that's driving this forward is out of MIT. It's called International Genetically Engineered Machines. And it's really how, it's, it's really the best student program for learning how to do synthetic biology. Hang on a sec. So in, it's genetically engineered machines. machines. So they're thinking about life as a kind of like a robot or a machine that you can control. Yeah, we look at simple bacteria as really being little robots that are programmable. Do you have examples of that? I mean, are there, are there, have they really built some of these machines? Absolutely. And this picture shows the 2012 leaders in the field. This is the, the world championships. There were over 2,500 students from 200 schools that participated this year. These were the best. The types of projects that I really like showing people, though, this was actually from a few years ago. It was some students at Cambridge University, and they were making super bright glowing bacteria in all different colors. And what they ultimately want to do is to make glowing trees so we don't need street lights anymore. That's I think incredible. that's really a cool idea. So that, those are the glowing trees in the Melbourne. background you can see. Exactly. <laughs> that's a cool idea. Uh, what else have you got? Well, this was the one that won the grand prize this year, and it was a group out of the Netherlands, and what they made was a bacteria that could sense when food was spoiling. They said, why are we trusting expiry dates? Why don't we actually look for food that's spoiling and the volatiles they put out? They figured this will save billions of tons of food you know, cool. annually from going to waste. So one of the things I'm hearing you say is that uh, when you let lots and lots of people work on these problems, they start coming up with they start finding interesting problems. I mean, the, the, the food expiration date probably doesn't strike any of us as a big problem. But you're right, it's a huge waste of food, isn't it? Exactly. You know, it, so much of it just gets discarded just because the date, you know, says it's expired. Really, where things are going now is it's actually coming out of academia and it's this type of biotechnology is becoming, coming into the community. This is a, a lab in Brooklyn called Genspace where it's a subscription model for about $100 a month. You're part of the lab. You can take courses. You can use the tools and get to see some really awesome speakers come by as well. So that's cool. So that's a little bit different from in the opening comments. I talked about people who are building labs in their houses, in their dens, or their closets. There's definitely but a few in, people that have done it. In a way, we're moving away from that now, where you can go join. It's like joining a hackerspace or a maker exactly. community. It's more fun when you do it with a group anyway. Sure, and you can get your questions answered, or somebody can show you how. Exactly, and you don't have to worry about the FBI necessarily beating down your door. So, and the groups that are really, really getting good at this, well, they're using robots to do a, not just printing of DNA, but actually booting of the organism and testing. So this is allowing people to really have biotechnology done remotely. Um, really wow, just cool. send a design, they'll build and test. That's a big one. So, so hang on, that means you, you could, 
you could design an organism on yeah. your desktop computer, your laptop computer at Starbucks even, and then send it out to get not just uh, printed or not just have the DNA uh, compiled for you, but you could actually have the organism what made, manufactured, produced, what are they made, what tested, they and the results come back to you, and you can decide whether you're going to. You so know, if you didn't get it right the first time, you can do it again. Do it again. <laughs> is this affordable or is it really expensive? It's expensive right now, but the prices come down really fast with these technologies. So, like all technology, the price keeps yeah. dropping. Yeah, it drops by about half every, you know, over some very short period of time. Wow, cool. And are you seeing like a lot of take up, take up with this? Yeah, yeah, okay. the field's really growing quickly because we keep hearing about it. And, you know, it's bottom up. Like, we really yeah. started building very simple things when this technology becomes available because you're actually writing genetic code base by base, letter by letter. And so the types of things people built first were, were things like viruses that are very, very tiny, just proof of concept. State of the art right now is doing things like bacteria. And yeah. only one bacterial genome has been completely synthesized and booted, but there'll be more. And right now, we're, we're moving up into doing more complicated genomic structures. This is baker's yeast. It's just, you know, the foundation of bread and... Beer? Beer. And beer is, <laughs> oh, the, most, is. Beer okay. is the most important part, because that's some people believe that beer is the root of all civilization, and I think it's actually going to be the gateway to a lot of synthetic biology as well. In fact, one of the iGEM teams, one of my favorites. Here are the German brewers. I love this. this these guys were at iGEM this year. They built four synthetic yeast. One of them was a flavor. One of them was a sweetener. One of them was a cancer drug. And my favorite was they put the biosynthetic pathway for caffeine into yeast. So caffeinated beer. And I love that That's idea. That's great. So it's beer that brings you up and then brings you down. Exactly. Cool. This right isn't, up. again, this isn't old recombinant cut and splice genetic engineering. This is from the code up every base pair controlled, and we're starting to be able to envision doing things with this, like you know, bringing back a woolly mammoth, yeah. or as you said, you know, perhaps even Neanderthals one day. Well, it wasn't me, it was George Church at Don't. Harvard who said that and recently. And he's saying you know, the technology is starting to allow us to think about doing this type of stuff in yeah. the future, not necessarily advocating doing it. The point I like to make is natural selection, you know, the stuff that we, ta we were taught in school about Darwin, it's kind of running at you know, it's kind of reaching the end. Natural selection had three rules. Eat, don't get eaten, and ultimately have babies, reproduce. Right. Now we've got human intention coming into that mix where we actually have to take some responsibility for the organisms that we choose to create and the ones that we allow to, to live. Wow, that, that's, that's a pretty big point. I mean, that's pretty profound stuff. So you're saying that the Darwin model is coming to an end because human beings now have the ability to direct evolution. We've been you know, directing evolution through agriculture, through re-engineering the world point. for a long time. This is just taking it to a whole new level. Okay, well on that note, that brings me to a thought, which is that there's some pretty heavy duty, uh, I'd say some pretty profound moral implications that I'm not quite sure we're prepared to talk about. Let's invite William Hurlbut up here. So our next guest is, um, is part of the faculty at Stanford University. Uh, he is a medical doctor. He's also trained in biology. He's got a, uh, studies in uh, theology as well. And so please join me in welcoming Dr. William Hurlbut. Hey, thank you. Hi. Welcome. So, um, so I'm interested to talk about this concept of bioethics, or, or a bioethicist, I guess, is how we were introduced. And so what is a bioethicist? What does a bioethicist do? Well, you know, it's an amazing era we're in. We've gone from the mule to the Maserati in the last century, <laughs> and here we go with this. Raises profound questions about the 
about nature and human nature, what's good human purpose. Darwinian evolution um, may have been largely governed by the principles you mentioned and, and the mechanism was information, but the product was mind and personal meaning. And that's what bioethics is at its core. Now bioethics has become a discipline within the universities and a dialogue within the, within the society. I personally think bioethics is not so much a profession as it is a conversation, one that requires the whole human family to participate. Okay, so you're, you're saying that we're, uh, we're moving away from the realm of pure scientists uh, where maybe there's a conversation happening in academia or in a research lab someplace. And you want to open that up to other people, other stakeholders, people who might have religious faith or people who might have different sets of values or, or maybe, maybe frankly people just aren't as enthusiastic about the future as me or Andrew might be. Is that, is that the notion yeah, behind bioethics? Yeah, I mean, that's bioethics? true. For, for one thing, in, in America, yeah. uh, funding, public funding of science is a major driver of science right. and, and it requires assent of the governed population. And there are uh, no small number of people that believe this stuff is apocalyptic, that it's challenging nature, it's eroding fundamental principles in the created order. And yeah, I think we have true. to take that very seriously, and I think there's some genuine concerns in those realms of thought. On the other hand, we have a whole history of, of retooling nature to higher purposes, and and I think there's positive to be done too. So it's a but delicate conversation. But in the past, that happened at a stately pace. So there was time for the regular population to catch up, even if there was some innovation happening, some scientists were pursuing an idea. But you know, today, we're in this phase where um, the, the phrase I like to use here is smaller, cheaper, faster, better. Yeah. And, and some of what Andrew just said, just to recap it, you know, uh, smaller is the ability to work at a small scale faster is that you've got the ability some of the parts are already built you know there's there's infrastructure in place so that you don't have to go build a whole laboratory or a whole fabrication plant uh you can get that in on demand over the internet with a company that does that all the time yeah. uh, and some of these ideas are borrowed frankly from the computer business and the internet industry uh where we've already perfected those models and what this says to me is smaller cheaper faster better it means the change is going to come much much faster we're accelerating are you concerned that we might reach escape velocity here where the conversation is taking so long compared to the advances in the science that the science gets way ahead of society? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not actually as concerned about that as you might, one might think because the problems are, get exponentially more difficult as you get toward more complex organisms and especially the human organism. What I, what I am worried about is the fact that before it was the external world that was the subject of our inquiry and manipulation. Now it's the, the living realm. All of living nature has become matter and information to be yeah, reshuffled and reassigned for projects of the human will. That, that is a different relationship with nature than simply reordering the combinations of fundamental elements. You're dealing with living organisms now and that's, that's raises ethical issues, of course, with regard to animals, but especially with regard to what we do with human beings. And one way of dealing with this is that, uh, at least at you know, the highest level of our government, the president puts together a commission, and, and you were actually part of the presidential council on bioethics. So can you tell me a little bit about that process? I, mean, I don't want to get into like Washington in huge detail, but I think it's interesting for people to know that this is what happens in our government. The president finds out about these new pioneering advances and says, gee, I need to know about that from yeah, a strategic it, standpoint. It was a very, it was a wonderful experience. I was one of 18 people asked to come together to, to talk about what we collectively as human beings ought to do with our advancing knowledge and control of living nature. And that, that is a huge responsibility. Now I have to say, 
uh, whatever you may think politically, President Bush really saw that these were significant issues, deep issues, and he admitted he didn't have the background to understand these, and he appointed a very diverse council, diverse politically too, by the way, to think deeply as we could on an earnest level about where our human future should actually go. Now, what was the outcome of the, of, you, you were working on the stem cell, that, that was a very intense debate, the, the stem cell yeah, policy. It, it was, we, we, uh, we, we didn't actually, they didn't even announce the council until the morning we met because they were, it was so tense. They didn't want anybody gainsaying who was appointed. Mm -hmm. So it came out in the New York Times, you know, two hours before we met. But uh, it, it, was a, it was like being in, in a war zone, actually. Oh, wow. the, the politics of it was very difficult. The animosities generated. And, um, so they put together a group of very diverse viewpoints. They did, and we disagreed with one another. There was a I lot see. of contention. And okay. I sat there and I listened to the contention. And I thought, well, why don't we solve this? You know, why don't we try and find a solution that meets the goals of those with moral concerns and meets the scientific medical goals? So I put forward a proposal called Ultra Nuclear Transfer that would use nuclear transfer technology to create lineages of cells that had the properties of embryonic stem cells without creating embryos. There were other proposals, and one of them that's now in ascendancy is called direct reprogramming, so-called induced pluripotent stem cells. And that's opened up vast realms, and that's the predominant technology now being used. So for the moment, we used our creative powers to jump over an ethical problem. And that's the way we ought to proceed, because there are serious scientific goals, but there are also serious ethical issues. That's one way of looking at it. But another perspective on the topic is that our debate, our dilemma in the United States, which had a lot to do with the collision between certain religious faiths and the progress of science, that debate stopped the United States cold in its tracks while we had the discussion, and all it really did was drive the innovation offshore. So uh, some would say that other countries, Asian countries, leapfrogged ahead in stem cell research. Well, I, I, in fact, I don't think it actually happened that way. We, America is still the most advanced country in stem cell biology, but beyond that, it's a, it's a necessary thing. And just because we can outsource our ethical issues somewhere else doesn't mean that's the right thing to do. We still need to get them right. Yeah, we do need that discussion. And, you know, regardless of how you feel about this, with, with regard to four or five day old embryos from which they get embryonic stem cells, there are proposals to use later and later stage embryos. And sooner or later, we're all going to get off at the station and somebody else will want to go to the next station. So we need to be attentive to the, to the, the, the high import of what we're doing here. They're, they're really big issues. The last century was about working with the ingredients of life. Now we're in the era of developmental biology, not just genomics, but developmental biology. That means we're working with living organisms. And when it comes to human living organisms, it creates the most fundamental questions of right. the meaning of human life. I understand. Across all its stages. In fact, when, when most people think about the stuff that we're talking about, they get freaked out. You know, this is scary stuff for most people. I don't know. I don't know about the, the young people you're working with in the in the you know the DIY bio scene. We're working with safe organisms, bottom up. So there's probably more harmful stuff in your bathroom or kitchen. <laughs> okay, fair <laughs> enough. But uh, but I think when when the average person hears about this, they have a kind of fear of the future. So you know the the, the person at home who hears scientists talking about these new technology advances, um, I think the concern people at home home have is that they've already heard about this stuff, but the way they've heard about it is through pop culture. And frankly, scientists are losing the pop culture battle. Uh, they're not doing enough to communicate the virtues. And so what happens is Hollywood fills in the blanks. And when Hollywood gets their hands on this stuff, 
Well, they spin it in kind of a fantastic way. You know, for instance, we got the meme of violent mutants. So here you have you know, your kind of classic Marvel Comics idea from the X-Men where uh, you know, some strange force has caused genetic mutations and then you've got someone like Wolverine who's out there in bursts of, uh, of violence. Right, is, there, is mutant, uh, thank you, <laughs> is, is the idea of these sort of unpredictable mutant mutations in us, is that part of what you grapple with? Is that, is that a real fear or is this just complete fantasy? No, actually I think that Hollywood actually dramatizing a lot of these ideas is terrific. You know, it, people actually know what a mutant is now, for yeah, example. You know, shows like Heroes were great for introducing not just you know bad mutants, but a bunch of good ones as well. So in a way, it makes it cool, and it makes it easier for you to connect with teenagers. Yeah, and of course, a lot of the scientists do advise Hollywood. Yeah, that's <laughs> true, whether or not they listen to them. Another meme that kind of comes through is this idea of the evil corporation that's going to patent all these new life forms and control it. And, and there's a couple of things that follow from that. You know, for instance, the movie Gattaca uh, had an idea there that, that your, your genome was destiny. You know, so in other words, you were born with a certain genome and then um, you'd, you'd, be, you'd have that sequenced at birth. And from that point, your role and your fate and future uh, opportunities were all set in stone and you had no choice. And then that, that particular movie played out in that fantasy world. But you know, as much as we can dismiss that as, uh, as maybe a fantasy, there is this kind of creepy undertone. When we talk about reprogramming biology, look, there's some bad history here. And it's the shadow, the specter, if you will, of eugenics that's in the background. And, and so well, tell me about that. I mean, how real of a concern is there with the idea of kind of designer babies, where we're yeah. selecting people, uh, well, selecting traits? Before there's designer babies, there's, there's what's been called micro-eugenics, the kind of um, figuring out what the genome of your prospective baby is and eliminating the one and implanting the one you want pre-implantation genetic diagnosis is part of this. So that's the first thing. And there are, of course, a whole bunch of proposals for designer babies, but, you know, it, it's not as simple as that. A, an organism is a very complex thing. Genes are more like colors on a painter's palette. They get mixed. So if you change a gene, you're not going to just get the trait you're after, but you're going to change a lot of other things, too. In fact, the human, human being, there's talk about producing uh, post-humans, trans-humans, techno-sapiens. I think this is good stuff in that it provokes a lot of very serious conversation, but it's also a lot, a lot of science fiction. In fact, we're a very complex, fine-tuned organism. The moral and spiritual meaning of our lives is tied in with the physical structure of our lives. And if we go and change basic things in our structure, we may just write ourselves right out of our own story. And besides that, the question is, well, how do you find out if it works? Do you have to experiment on hundreds or thousands of embryos to see if it works? Those are, that's serious stuff. I mean, it's... Pretty strong words. Andy, yeah, your well, you know, my perspective is no one worries about eugenics when it comes to microbes or the perfect microbe. You know, we're starting bottom up with this. I think it's a long time before we start programming humans. Um, you know, I hope by that point uh, everyone has access to the tools and it's not going to be one size fits all. Let's talk about one more idea that's very current right now because um, it's been in the news a lot thanks to our friend Lance Armstrong, our former hero, <laughs> now disgraced. Um, but it's this idea of unfair advantage, right? And so somehow at the core everybody gets this idea. They say, gee, they're athletes and we admire them because they're natural. I don't know why we feel that way because we give our kids Ritalin and we don't mind giving people, you know, medicine to recover from a disease. But somehow if you give uh, an athlete something that's going to make him perform better on the field, that's really gone too far and people really react viscerally to that. 
my sense is if you're able to select for certain traits or even you know, deposit the, the, the genes into, uh, into somebody's cells, you could actually groom a whole generation of athletes that are super athletes. And that's going to eradicate this idea, just make it completely irrelevant, this idea of banning any kind of doping or, or uh, performance enhancement. It seems a little different if you're selecting for traits rather than engineering them in. Like we already select for seven foot tall basketball players. If we actually well, start engineering them, maybe they'll be 12. Yeah, but it, you know, the larger issue here is, well, maybe you could engineer people for specific purposes, but in fact, the human organism is a general purpose organism. We adapted for adaptability. Every one of us has a vast range of possibilities, and that's built on a fragile frame of embodied freedom. The, the truth is, if we go fooling around with our biology, we're liable to diminish ourselves, not enhance ourselves. And yeah, you could maybe make a specialized human beings, but the trouble with that is, um, among other things, the, by the time they grew up to maturity, they probably wouldn't be what was relevant. You know, life changes oh, so fast. Okay. The flavor of the month problem. Oh, right, so you make a you guess. But, but really, it's, it's a much more serious issue. We, we have yet to appreciate the, the profundity of what, what the process of life's unfolding has produced. We're, We've been tested through through millions of years of, of field testing. We're packed for all kinds of weather. We're a very responsive organism. You go fooling around trying to specialize the human organism, and you may you, you may get some kind of a you know exaggerated quality, but you won't get a better human being. Or some unexpected outcome that might be quite grave. There could it could have some grave implications. What do you say when people tell you these things? I mean, does this concern you? Is this something that you say, look, it's not an issue yet, so we're going to soldier on? No, I actually don't follow many professional sports, so really, but, but, but in all seriousness, gene doping rather than just you know, performance enhancing chemicals is a serious concern. Potentially we can, may be able to modify our athletes down the road in ways that are undetectable by any type of doping, uh, anti-doping regime anyway. Seems almost like a certainty to me, right? It, it, it's, it's changing. They'll be genetically modified to become yeah. fantastic runners and jumpers and catchers. Maybe and one day we'll need an extreme league in the Olympics. I don't know. Seems like, on the other hand, maybe that's humanity's future. You know, maybe now that humanity has this uh, ability to kind of direct evolution, maybe our future is that we're going we're gonna to direct ourselves towards that goal, towards a, a kind of uh, excellence. Well, I kind of facetiously suggested my students that in the future there might be three Olympics the Special Olympics, the regular Olympics, and the Bio-Olympics, where people are allowed to enhance Where they can enhance it any way they want, a, right? I think it's a bad idea. Those guys will get a lot of sponsorship dollars from like, <laughs> yeah. the science Yeah, companies. right, <laughs> by biotech companies. You know, the, the thing is, though, it, it won't just be, if there are such capacities, it won't just be sports. It'll be interventions on all sorts of levels. Right. The, the, the paradigm for this, of course, is cosmetic surgery and people doing what they want to do. Well, there's one, it's one thing to, to alter the surface of your body. That's within, you know, we alter our hair and somewhat our surface. Everybody through history has done that. But when it comes to altering the very inner biochemical dynamics of your being, that's a much more serious matter. And what purposes will guide us? That's the key. When you right. talk about the difference between enhancement and therapy, the question is why and what, what purposes? Because not just for Com competitive purposes for, for desires or appetites or ambitions that were per personal or private. You could get a kind of a, what, what Nietzsche called the pitiable comfort, the, so the source of the seeking of, of just enjoyments at a very trivial level that displaces from more serious pursuits. Or you could get what 
most postmodernists call free play, the kind of indulgence in the aesthetics of the body, you know, potentiating yourself for greater that, kinds of pleasure. I mean, these, sure. these could be very disruptive and very dehumanizing because they could, they could knock us right off of the deep story of our lives, the moral spiritual story. On that dark note, let me bring up one more real fear. You know, some of the fears we've been talking about so far, I think, are a little bit fantastical, maybe a little bit Hollywood. But let's talk about bioterror. It needs to be brought up. And I learned as I was preparing for this that the FBI already has, as a part of their uh, directorate on weapons of mass destruction, they already have a bioterror unit. I guess it doesn't get a lot of publicity. Maybe that's the right thing. Um, tell me about the prospect for bioterror. Right now, what I've heard from a biohacker was this is the least efficient way to kill people. If you want to kill people, like this is not the means to do it because it's really hard to, to get it to work at all at this stage. How great a fear is that? And how great a fear might that be in the future? Well, for me, it's actually a very low fear. I'm a microbiologist by training, and what I know is we're surrounded by microbes all the time. They're in us, they're on us, they're in the air, they're on every surface, they're in holes as deep as we can drill. The oceans are filled with them, and really, we have a great relationship with most microbes out of the billions of different species that are out there. Yeah. And there's only a few hundred that really cause us you know, tremendous harm. But you wrote a piece in The Atlantic that was really pretty provocative. And if you haven't seen this, check it out. It's a great article. It's about hacking the president's DNA so that you can make a, a virus that's customized for one person's DNA and could actually be lethal. So you even foresaw that scenario. Well, you know, really what I was trying to point out there is we're getting really good at targeting cells for destruction, which is part of the work that we're doing globally in cancer. Right. And turning that around, if we can target an individual's cells for destruction in cancer, then you should be able to target an individual. That's a lot different than, so, so using the president as a high-profile target, we, we drew out that scenario to, to show that it was plausible in the future. But that's very different than creating something like the next influenza that could, right. that could spread and hurt a lot of people. In fact, really, I think we're going to get really good at detecting all microbes in real time. And already you can find groups, you know, people doing this on Twitter, so you can have an idea what the flu index in your city yeah, is. Yeah, that's true. We're tracking things faster than faster ever than now than ever because before. people have these mobile phones. That right now, them. we're just kind of dark to the microbes. Okay, so let's flip it around then. Let's look at the upside or the bright potential. What are the opportunities that you foresee up, you know, out in the future beyond the stuff that you talked about? Like, where does it really get crazy? George Church tells us that we're going to be able to plant a seed in the future, and that'll grow into an oak tree, but that oak tree will be pre-programmed to turn into a house. And so he foresees <laughs> some kind of like organic construction. I think it's a really cool idea. Is that where you see this heading? I, you know, the, the area that I love to focus on is I think we're going to get a revolution in personalized medicine in cancer. Cancer is actually a pretty simple problem. It's kill that cell and don't kill that cell. And the more we know about genetics and the more we have tools to be able to do selective targeting, I think we end up being able to make cancer medicines faster, cheaper for single individuals and, and really, you know, getting around this 10 to 15 year development window because we have to make something mass market. To me, that's the absolute biggest opportunity, apart from the fact that I think this is going to be the next IT industry and that you know, is going to be a massive yeah, it, driver it, of education and diversity. It certainly has a lot of investors interested for that reason. And the, the opportunity to cure great diseases like cancer, that is a massive opportunity ahead. William, what's your perspective? What do you see as a great opportunity with uh, synthetic biology? I'm pretty much with Andrew. I, I think there are really wonderful possibilities here. 
Uh, as just as in the 19th century, we figured out the periodic table of chemicals. Now we're getting the basic building blocks of life. It's much more complicated because they're very complex interacting qualities to these molecules and a living organism is a, a system with interactive and integrated parts. Having said that, I think that the, uh, the, the possibilities for dealing with medical problems are wonderful. Mm -hmm. However, the downside is that, that there'll be all sorts of slow but steady incursions into natural human existence and we're getting there. I mean, birth control pill separated sexual intercourse from procreation and it was, regardless of how you feel about it, it caused a lot of social disruption. Tremendous, these, yeah. These it, could too. Viagra, by the way, provoked a, a uh, epidemic of sexually transmitted diseases in nursing homes. How about that? <laughs> but, but, you know, my real thought on this is that we have to be very careful and think deeply because I believe the material and the moral were poured forth from a single creative source. This means that the, what's coming next after the next thing, which is the theme here, is, is unknown. And I think it's possible one of the products that the next after the next will actually be a good quality of humility. Humility. Yes, and it'll either come about because we carelessly and arrogantly charge forward and make bad mistakes, or we thoughtfully reflect on who we really are. You know, the, the word human comes from the same root as the word earth, humus, or soil, but it's also the same root of the word humility. Oh, cool. And, and we're creatures of the earth. We've been produced by very, very complicated mechanisms of being. We are complex personal beings, and we need to realize what an amazing quality of being we are. There's a saying that Mother Nature always bats in the bottom of the ninth. We have to remember that whatever we think we may be doing, we, we may not have the final word on that, so we need to be humble. And the first principle of real humility, it's the first principle of intelligent tinkering, is never throw away any of the parts. And it's not just the physical parts, but it goes to the, to the theological and philosophical human perspectives of who we really are. So your view is this integrated kind of conversation that includes the viewpoints of many people, even those who are opposed, is a necessary step in order to achieve that goal. Absolutely. We go right forward on. together. These are, these are issues of global proportions. They're species issues. We need to address them collectively. Right on. Well, it's time for me to turn to what comes next after what's next. And so this is the end of our show here. Folks, we're going to experience something amazing in this century. The people in this room, the people who are watching this, um, what we're going to have a chance to experience is with synthetic biology, we're going to solve some of the most pressing concerns that face humanity today, that face us today. I mean shortages of fuel, the shortages of food, um, perhaps the opportunity to eradicate diseases, not just diseases like, like, like uh, cancer, but also communicable diseases. There are people working on that right now. Uh, we may discover that we can even manufacture things organically, as George Church has speculated. So that all lies ahead as great potential. But what we're going to need to confront is a conflict, a conflict that's within each one of us, a conflict that pits our faith in technology against our trust in nature and what makes us human. And within that conflict, we're going to be torn. Each one of us is going to find that our belief in human nature or in nature itself is challenged 
by the science that is coming. Now, there's a lot of ways that we can react to this. And one thought that I have to share with you tonight is don't ban it. Don't outlaw this. Prohibition doesn't work. We know that. We've seen that with the prohibition, with the war on drugs that really hasn't been very successful. And even more recently with file sharing, it doesn't work. All it does is drive that activity, that innovation, offshore and underground in ways that you can't control it and it's just going to come back stronger than ever before. That seems to be a pattern that we've seen. I personally place great faith, my hope resides in this concept of the citizen scientist because nothing is going to serve us better than to have a, a population that's knowledgeable about science, not just knowledgeable because they studied it or read about it, but knowledgeable because they practice it. And so they have a working knowledge of science and that's where I see the future heading. So those are my thoughts about what comes next after what's next. I want to share, thank, one, one more thing, I want to thank our band up there, Paul Wertico, our seven-time award-winning Grammy producer, songwriter, and drummer. Thank you, Paul. And of course, I want to thank our distinguished guest, Andrew Hessel of Autodesk, and Dr. Dr. William Hurlbut from Stanford University. Thank you both for joining me here, and thanks, audience, you've been great. Thank you.